Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Jonan Pillay. Jonan is an author, journalist, and educator. He studied writing at Houghton University and the University of Oxford and received his MFA from Seattle Pacific University. Currently based in West Virginia, Jonan works as a journalist for Food Safety News and also teaches creative writing at Houghton University. Raised across the United States as well as abroad in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, Jonan's debut short story collection, Nomad Nomad, which was published in 2021 by Bound to Brew Press, explores the lives of Mongols and expats looking for a sense of home within a nomadic culture. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So thank you so much, Jonan, for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Really excited to talk about the book. So first and foremost, I wanted to ask what brought your family to Mongolia? When did you live there? Um, and what did, was your family doing there? Yeah, it kind of, I'll start way back from the beginning. So right at birth, you know, um, I was born in uh, Pennsylvania. And my parents decided when I, I was pretty young, about two years old, that they were going to go into missions, Christian missions. And they were assigned to Mongolia sometime when I was about two years old. And then for the next two years, until I was four, they were raising money across the U.S. for the mission. And when when I was four, my mom actually passed away while giving a presentation and talking about wanting to go to Mongolia and all this. She was standing up on stage and had an aneurysm. And that actually kind of... um, set back plans for a while about going to Mongolia. So my dad actually met another woman about six months later and um, they got married and I was adopted by my my adopted mom and we reset to go to Mongolia. So ever since I was two, I knew I was going to Mongolia and that was going to be home. And my home was very all over the place and I lost a mom and all this. So Mongolia was almost this destination for me that I was going to get to eventually. And at the age of six, we finally actually made it to Mongolia. And I lived there four years and at from six to 10. And then when I was 10, my brother was diagnosed with autism. And they were concerned that the dual languages meant that he would never learn English. So we actually had to leave Mongolia. And at the time, I was 10. I love Mongolia. Like, that was my home. Um, And I was told, you know, we're probably going to go back. And we actually never were able to go back again. Mm -hmm. So even after that, I kept thinking, oh, we're going to go back to this home that is Mongolia. Mm -hmm. And um, we traveled all over. I was all over um, Washington State, New York. So the longest I ever lived anywhere was actually in Ulaanbaatar up until high school, where at the end of high school, I think I finally tipped over into living in New York a little bit longer than Mongolia. But that's that's what brought me to Mongolia. My parents, while there, they um, they started a English language school as well as a Bible school that, and they also taught Greek as well for Bible translations into Mongolian. Uh, so, what was your education like in Mongolia? Were you educated at your parents' school? Yeah. So my um, I did uh, homeschooling for the most part, but there was also a homeschool co-op that was run 
by various foreigners in the country. It was all in English, but it was a lot of, we had German students, we had Australian, we had um, a number of South Korean students. So a very international mix, all in Ulaanbaatar that kind of came together and did certain subjects in English. And could you talk a little bit about kind of the missionary community? This was a quite a pervasive theme in your book uh, is was, was stories about American missionaries. And so from reading your book, it seems like kind of a large community of like foreign Christian missionaries to Mongolia. Is that the case? Is there this kind of strong or large presence of expat missionaries in Ulaanbaatar or you know throughout Mongolia? Yeah. So in um, 2000, when we first moved there, um, it was pretty much the only foreigners in the country were missionaries. The other foreigners that were there would be the very small U.S. embassy or the Russian embassy. But by and large, most foreigners that were there, if you walked down the street and you saw someone that wasn't Mongolian, they were probably a missionary Mm -hmm. there. So it became, you ended up, it's not a huge city, Ulaanbaatar. um, For anyone who's been there, it's very walkable. Um, for the most part, the downtown area with all the apartments, very walkable. And then outside of that are all the Gare districts where the yurts are. And that's a little more sprawling, but there's less prime missionaries living out there. So all the foreigners are more congregated in that kind of the big cement structures in the middle of the city. So it, it became a kind of close knit community just because there wasn't a ton of foreigners in general. Mm-hmm. So the ones that were there were generally doing missions. Uh, And so what was the extent of your interactions with Mongolians? Yeah, so as a kid, uh, it's kind of interesting because there isn't a lot of the barriers that are there with um, adults aren't quite there. Mm -hmm. So you get to just go out in the street and play with them. And it's great. I found that in Ulaanbaatar, in the city, it was very difficult for foreigners to make friends especially foreign foreigner kids. Um, Mongolian kids generally knew a couple English words and they were all swear words. So we were constantly, and there was some, I think some sort of fear or just otherness that comes with maybe just a country that's newly opened to the outside world. I mean, it only been nine years since the country had really opened up and There was definitely some otherness. What you found, though, is when I left the city, when we would go on these trips out to villages and into the kind of more nomadic areas, is the people were much more welcoming and the kids were much more willing to just play and make friends, whereas it it was difficult. I think uh, bullying is a weird word because it wasn't like this U.S. bullying where you're like picking on each other. This was more probably a little bit more dangerous where you get chased with sticks and rocks thrown at you. And I don't want to paint all the Mongolian kids that way because they weren't. But there is this kind of back and forth of needing to be careful because there was a kind of sentiment that maybe foreign kids were a little bit dangerous or shouldn't be messed with or something like that. And something else I found that was just kind of new for me was just reading about Ulaanbaatar in general. Because I've, I mean, I've done some academic reading and research about Mongolia, but with a focus on, you know, with my focus being nomadism, I tend to read anthropological books about, you know, pastoralism on the Mongol steppe. And I've read very little about 
urban life in Mongolia. And so I know, you know, your book is fiction, but still, I think it painted a really vivid picture of what life is like in the capital and especially the kind of underworld of the capital. Um, you have some stories about, you know, homeless children, about street crime, things like that, about the kind of violence, like this kind of day to day violence um, of living in the city that you just mentioned. Could you just talk a little bit more about what living, what your kind of perception or experiences of Ulaanbaatar were like, as well as, because you just said that you would travel to the more nomadic areas as well. Under what circumstances would you then leave the capital? Um, and then what were your kind of experiences? Yeah, um, definitely a warmness to the more urban areas is probably the biggest difference, a more welcome, welcoming presence, just not with, just with the kids, but with everyone. Um, I think an important thing to always remember about Mongolia and Ulaanbaatar is you can't separate it from the harshness of the climate mm-hmm. and of just the day-to-day life. It is the coldest capital in the world, and um, it's brutal. It's brutal. And, um, I mean, I, I've never experienced anything like it outside of there where you get to negative 40 below with negative 40 below wind chill where your nose hairs freeze and your eyelashes freeze together. Um, and that's another thing that makes it hard for people often to um, come together in a city. So there's very um, insular because in a city um, you have your tight knit communities and it can be hard to get into those. Whereas when you're out and about in the country, when it's that cold and brutal, they let you right in right next to the fire. You're all kind of in this together in a way. Um, yeah, so that's definitely a big difference there. The, the homelessness and the, all of that is there's definitely when life is that hard, you're kind of, I think, looking out for yourself and your family first. And when there was really no social systems in place at the time to deal with these children. And it's probably the most heartbreaking thing is the story of those kids and what I would see. And these kids that would literally, you'd watch them climb out of the sewers Mm because they live down there because it's the warmest place around. And um, I actually returned to Mongolia in 2019 for a, Mm -hmm. for a month in the summer of 2019. And the thing that stood out to me the most was that all these kids were gone. All these kids I'd grown up seeing everywhere in the streets, um, in the sewers, um, begging, all of them were just gone. So I, the, the journalist part of me, you know, started asking questions and I started, um, asking different people where they had gone. And I started to get the same story over and over again. Um, which is that, Many of them were taken. Many of them were trafficked. Many of them were um, these stories I heard of kids being taken to the Chinese border and used as just like organ donors, just these really horrific stories. Um, And it was the same story repeated over and over again, which gave it to me a lot more uh, credibility. And it's just, just heartbreaking stories like that. But... And then transposed to the village, you don't see those kids. Um, I I talk a bit about probably what happens to more uh, displaced people out in the villages where they find homes or if there's too many kids and they can't be taken care of, they're maybe given to a family. Um, 
so there's more of this interconnectedness, even oddly in the nomadic areas, which is an interesting thing to think about. Hmm. And so in your family's work as missionaries, what exactly did that entail and sort of what segments of the population would they be interacting with? You know, were things like homelessness seen as something that it was kind of your your family's or other missionaries sort of responsibility to try to help people in need or kind of what segments of society would they be be encountering in their kind of pastoral work? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, It definitely depended on the missionaries and what their work was there. Uh, The kind of umbrella term that my parents went under was church planners. So their idea was to establish a church Mm -hmm. that would do these kind of ministries and bring people in. We worked with a local church there called, oh, oh man, and blanking on the name, but we worked with a local church and the pastor of that church was actually the very first Christian in Mongolia uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And the reason was because his daughter went and was able to study in England and had actually become a Christian, had been accepted into like this church in the England, had become a Christian and had come home and told her father, And some of the miraculous things you hear about with that is like a lot of Mongolia has a serious, Ulaanbaatar has a serious um, drinking problem. There's a huge alcoholism and to the point where they still, even in the summer 2019, where there's cops on the roads at night that stop every car and make sure they're sober. Um, And her, her father had a huge drinking problem and she really wanted to help him. And it was kind of through the Christian work and through the, um, he became a Christian and he started this church and they did really wonderful things. And they, they had this big church already built up. So when we came, we kind of plugged into that and worked with them on starting this school and doing the, the Bible translation. Cause that was a huge thing to get, a Mongolian Bible, you know, uh, a Bible in their actual language. So that was my parents' focus. A lot of um, other missionaries did do things like start orphanages, work with orphanages. Uh, It's really hard when there's that overwhelming amount of children in the streets and all this. Um, We would refuse to give them money because we viewed it as actually kind of detrimental, because a lot of these kids we knew were getting abused so that they would be more likely to get money. They would have broken arms or broken legs or not have clothes, and it's because they would be forced that way so that they were more likely to get donations from people. So we would focus on giving food and those clothes and those types of things that would actually hopefully be used in the right way, you know. There was one story in your book that I found really, just really interesting uh, about, I guess, a faith healer, uh, maybe somebody who was an American, uh, basically being paid um, by Mongolians to perform these acts of healing, um, sort of religious. Could you talk a little bit about that story? Uh, Because that one really stood out to me in the context of kind of all of these other surrounding stories that were about kind of more conventional Christian mission work. That story, which is about a kind of similar, you know, Christian-oriented faith work, but that 
is very much outside of, you know, that would not, I believe, I think, be condoned by any kind of umbrella, you know, Christian mission organization. You know, to what extent are stories like that maybe based on your own personal observations or experiences, if any? Yeah, it's actually, it's really sad because we did see these kind of, I hesitate to use the word cult, but cult-like activity coming into the country. And I think anywhere that's been so isolated from the outside world, I think is very ripe to abuse in this way. And, And it's part of the critique of the book in general is the relationship between foreigners and a a country that is somewhat naive to the outside world and not naive in any kind of bad way, but they just, Western influence is all really new. There's weird things like MTV would play nonstop on the big screen in this Soviet square in the center of the city. And the <laughs> there's just these kind of weird meetings of these cultures. And the healer that comes to this in the story, comes to this world, is kind of one of these intersections. We have these in the U.S., but they're kind of shrugged off or people tend to not take them as seriously. And we did see this actually happen while we were there. And one of the saddest stories to me was we had a uh, a friend who was, she would, um, we would pay her to do like cleaning and stuff in the house. We, we gave her, we became very close with her family and her kids. And she actually had a form of, ended up having a form of liver cancer. And she went to one of these healers and was told she was healed. So she stopped actually doing any of the kind of treatments that doctors were recommending and passed away very quickly after that. And it's these kind of tragic stories of this relationship. In the story, I try to take a sympathetic approach to the character of the healer that maybe they truly believe and don't actually aren't trying to take advantage of these people. But I think that's generous of me. I think there are a lot of that are just taking advantage. And it's one of the hard things about even when I went back in 2019 is when you look around and you see the foreigners, you know that a number of them are just there taking advantage of the culture or economic means or women a lot of the times in these kind of third world countries. And it is very, very difficult to to look around and see that. Mm. Several of the stories in your book are also told from the perspective of Mongols. How did you write those, just based on what you've been saying about having lived in Mongolia for four years as a child, having kind of, not limited, but your interactions with Mongolians would have been through a kind of specific lens and specific certain circumstances. What were the challenges, if any, uh, of kind of trying to write stories from the perspective of people who belong to a culture that you yourself are not a part of? Yeah, it was honestly very difficult. And at first, when I was working through the collection, I didn't think I could or or maybe even I should write from the Mongolian perspective because I'm not Mongolian and I was worried about my limited knowledge. So the first thing I did was try to educate myself as much as possible. And I read whatever Mongolian writers I could. Um, The difficulty with that is that there really isn't a ton of Mongolian writing. Um, And there isn't a ton of Mongolian written history from the Mongolian perspective. And this is because um, 
of the Lenin purges and the burning of libraries and the killing of all the academics and uh, all the priests and all this, which ended up being about, I think, over a third of all Mongolian men were killed in that period of the Lenin purges. And um, one of the writers I was able to find, his name is uh, Sendin, I'm always going to butcher the name, uh, Sendin Demdin Surin. And uh, he was able to survive the purges because he was studying in Leningrad at the time. And when he came back, he was actually thrown into prison. And he, he was able to write stories, but he had to be very careful. And you could tell that there's this very Soviet bent to everything he's writing. And so even the stories you're reading, you have this, this, this veil they're kind of hiding behind that you have to work through at times. But that was a really great insight into some of the writing style. And some of the stories I wrote from the Mongolian perspective, I really used him as a guide to what these kind of the, the mindsets are and what the, the kind of thematics and the spiritualism and all this, which I had experienced, but not from that side of things. So I took that. And then the other thing I did was I focused on Mongolian children mostly, and which I had had a lot more experience with being mm-hmm. around the children. And it's almost easier to put yourself in the mindset, not that you can experience the pain and the depths of it, but the kids in the sewers is a little easier to come in close with because they don't have necessarily the cultural background. They have what you see, you know? Right. Well, so let's maybe go back to what you said about returning to Mongolia in 2019. You talked a little bit about some of the differences that you observed between then and when you had grown up there. Were there other differences that you saw just in sort of just in the capital alone? Yeah, there's huge changes. And it's definitely capitalism has come in and taken its hold. Um, There are KFCs everywhere and there are Pizza Huts and Another great story about this kind of uh, the West coming into the East and not really knowing anything about the East is the KFC uh, explosion. Um, My other work is in food safety. And this horrible food safety event happened when KFC came into Mongolia because chicken is a very rarely eaten, if ever eaten in Mongolia. So when they brought in KFC, so many people did not know how to prepare chicken and the dangers of salmonella. So KFC had this huge outbreak that affected thousands of people in Ulaanbaatar because there was really no knowledge of how to prepare this food and no knowledge that the people would need to be trained and have extra training about the dangers of raw chicken. Um, Yeah, so it's just one of those interesting examples uh, other big things have changed. There's big hotels and shopping malls that weren't there. There's uh, movie theaters. I, I saw Avengers Endgame in theaters while I was there, which is bizarre. If you had told uh, Jonin as a kid that one day he'd be able to see those kind of movies in Mongolia, his mind would blow. Uh, the only theaters that were in Mongolia when I was there, you would go back into this like dark room and they'd have a small TV and you would pick the VHS tape and put it in. <laughs> so there's big changes like that. And I, I think what you see too is a little more 
unrest actually between the poor and the rich. Mm. Um, I think the country overall has become a lot wealthier, which is a good thing because there's a lot more healthcare. There's all these kind of great things that come with that. But what you also have is the poor seeing the wealth and being more disgruntled. And what I heard is there's a lot of more gang violence than there ever was in these kind of outskirts of Ulaanbaatar, that there's this unrest, especially with young men and what's going on there. And so a big theme of your whole collection is just the idea of home, um, what it means to kind of make a home, to find a home, and specifically what that means in sort of the context of nomadism or maybe sort of in a, the context of mobility in general, because on the one hand, yes, you're talking about this idea of home, homemaking, kind of placemaking in a kind of traditionally nomadic pastoralist context, but also in the context of like modern 20th and 21st century expats uh, among people like yourself and your family, you know, people who compared to Mongolians, you know, who have more privilege in that context based on where you come from, your skin color, you know, things like that. Can you just talk a little bit about sort of those contrasts? Or maybe it's not a contrast, actually, maybe just this kind of overarching theme, this kind of human condition of looking for home, how you experienced that, that phenomenon, both how you felt it yourself among considering how you grew up moving around between all these different places, but also how you experienced that among Mongolians. Yeah, there's, there's almost always a temperance to whatever, wherever they set up, you know, and as is nomadism, right? You're never quite, you're always ready to move. And for me, And for the foreigners in the story, there's an idea that nothing's quite permanent. You know, we're going to these places, we're doing work, but we're still moving on, moving on, moving on. And one of the contrasts, and I think I kind of brought it up in the Soviet skate park in the third story, is this idea that there's just so much concrete, which is almost just like as an image and as a symbol, it's like the opposite of being a nomad is to put concrete down because concrete cannot be moved, you know? And when the Soviets took over and they really built Ulaanbaatar from not much to this large city that now has over half the population, I think, of all of Mongolia, which is, a, it was about 1.5 million. I think it's higher, much higher now. But yeah, there's that putting concrete down and trapping nomads in a way is such an interesting thing and the expats are kind of trapped in place even though they're they're mobile people as well Mm. Uh, the other interesting picture is the the gears on the outside because these are gears that sit there forever and if you know anything about gears they're built and meant to be packed up and moved that's always been their purpose to move with their flocks and with their sheep and everything But because of this city that they now have to be surrounded with and they're they're immobile, they're immobile tents that just sit there. And it's such an interesting, interesting picture. Um, Ironically, I think what gives Mongolians a sense of home is 
a sense of nationalistic pride in a way. They, they do love their country and they talk about like the blue sky and how the blue sky covers everything. And that's a beautiful picture because it makes you always feel like home if you're under that blue sky, which is an interesting context to the expats, which don't really have that sense. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of even the Mongolians in Ulaanbaatar have much less of that kind of picture and idea than some of the nomads out, out and about. And it's a real, I think it's a struggle because when you don't have that sense of home, I think that's when you do see more violence and more, uh, just just bad things happening because you don't have this sense of community as well and this sense of helping each other and hospitality and all of that. Like what you said about sort of this feeling of being trapped because I did feel that quite strongly um, in your stories in both kind of types of stories, the stories from kind of the Mongolian perspective and from the foreigners' perspectives as well, where each side is kind of is trapped by their respective circumstances, you know, the Mongolians by inequality, these kind of changing social conditions that are leaving a lot of people behind. And then the foreigners are trapped by being foreigners, by, you know, not being able to communicate, by being outsiders, you know. And so, like I said earlier, you know, yes, expats do have kind of more privilege often in these circumstances just by being an American expat in a developing country and you do have the ability and the freedom to leave if you want to but when you're in that country when you're in that context you are trapped and stifled by a lot of things that are outside of your control and that's I think that's a really interesting tension that came through really strongly in your stories is this kind of contrast between what we kind of envision about traditionally nomadic societies like Mongolia is we envision this and kind of romanticize this idea of freedom and being able to go wherever you want, do whatever you want, countered by this realities of just daily life, trying to navigate a new foreign country, not being able to communicate the being surrounded by the violence that you described, things like that. Yeah, that that communication part's huge too. Mm -hmm. Uh, The story, Mongol Boys, was actually the first story I wrote in the collection. And it centers around this moment where the foreign boy can't communicate with the Mongolian boy and they're just playing catch. And it should end peacefully and fine, but because they can't communicate, the foreign boy gets frustrated and throws a ball too hard, and it ends in this violent scene. And I, I think that's a great picture of how these, this kind of clash of cultures can really go terribly mm-hmm. because frustration builds and a sense of being trapped really mm-hmm. leads to, to bad things. Yeah. Mm. And so maybe we could talk a little bit more about how you wrote these stories. It's a collection of short stories. Like you said, I imagine you wrote all of them kind of at different periods of time. Can you talk a little bit about when you started working on these? Sort of what was your first idea? When did you first decide to start writing about your experience of growing up in Mongolia? Yeah, I was really reluctant for a long time for some of the same reasons I said earlier. I just didn't feel quite, um, I think I I dealt with a lot of imposter syndrome. I'm like, oh, you only lived there four years, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And I think that's why the background's important too and why 
Mongolia has always felt like such a home to me because for my whole childhood, you're going to Mongolia, you're in Mongolia, that's your home. Mm. Now we're leaving, but you're going to come back. And even though I never came back really to, to live, Mongolia was always a goal and something bigger than even itself. So I knew eventually I would need to write about it. Uh, it's one of those weird writer things where what you're afraid of writing, eventually you always have to come back and write. Um, so I definitely knew I would write about it. I started with uh, the stories that were important to me as a child and the things that kind of stuck in my head. And I did something where I kind of fictionalized some real parts of stories and some real things that happened. Um, I wouldn't like go through and pick like, cause they're, they're, they've changed so much from the original stories, but there was definitely a part of me too, that was scared to tell the truth just as straight nonfiction. Cause there's, there's, a sense that I wouldn't be able to communicate as accurately as a fiction writer. This is what I do. I love short stories and I, I wanted to communicate my art and the passion for Mongolia and the people all in that form. But I also, it's, there was a part of me that was like, this is stranger than fiction, many of these stories. And if you tell them, tell them in straight um, nonfiction form, I was worried they wouldn't quite be taken as well or believable in ways. Uh, a great example of that is Diesel, um, the story about the Mongolian herders that got stuck for a blizzard in three days. Uh, my family was actually stuck in the blizzard for three days in the Gobi Desert. And we were in a car with Diesel and we ran into, um, after the first day ran into this group of traveling like herds people like in the story. And so when I came to write this story, I was like, I'm just going to take myself and my family right out of it and try to tell this story from their perspective, because this is something they deal with more routinely. And this was kind of a random, crazy event that my family went through. I wanted Mongolia to be communicated in a way that the American reader could sit down and resonate with and understand and experience Mongolia in some ways. And I, I think that that's the goal of any really good writing is hopefully to communicate and get the person to experience what's being talked about. And Mongolia is not a place most people even think about. And in some ways it can read like science fiction at times or mm -hmm. like some sort of alien planet. And so to bring it down to the level of children and really make it like, this is what's real. This is the things that are actually happening. These are the sensory details of life every day. You know? mm. Yeah, I did feel like there was this kind of almost magical realist tone to a lot of the stories. So I was going to ask if that was kind of intentional or if that's, but I think you actually just answered that already. Yeah. And that goes to the magical realism elements to go to a, uh, spirituality and just Mongolian life too. There's a very connectedness to spirits and to demonic forces and all mm -hmm. of this. Um, the Tibetan influence mixed with some some kind of uh, more uh, nature nature worship in ways and all of this kind of mixed together into some really interesting. Um, and often quite terrifying spiritual world that is going on all the time. And that's definitely really important to communicate. And I kind of, I book, bookmark the, the, the beginning and the end with these stories that 
deal with a lot of this kind of magical realism, this, these ideas that it's almost real, almost not when you get with, uh, like in sewer dogs where things are so cold that the magic almost kind of seeps into the world because you're delirious in ways, but also this is how you interpret the world too. So it's real in a sense in that it's the interpretation of things happening. So have you thought about a Mongolian readership of your stories? You know, you said you want Americans to be able to read these and kind of get a sense of what Mongolia is really like. Have you thought about, you know, or do you know of Mongolians who have read your stories and what they might think about them? So I've had a few Mongolians read it, um, really liked it, but I don't, I'm not sure they'd tell me if they hated it. <laughs> but Fair. When, when I was writing it, I was kind of most terrified, I think, of Mongolians reading it because of, I, I just naturally know as a Westerner and as someone who I, I'm not fluent in the language, um, I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to make a lot of mistakes, but I wanted to get the heart right. And that was my focus. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of people that also grew up or traveled to Mongolia read it and really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And that gives me a. It gives me some sort of solace that maybe when Mongolians do pick it up, they'll they'll still feel like it's their country that's being represented too. And so maybe as a final question, as we're coming up on the end of our time, your day job is as a journalist. Have you ever thought about doing any kind of more nonfiction or journalistic writing on Mongolia? Yeah. I have. At the moment, I decided when I finished this book, I decided I need to take a break from Mongolia. I need to kind of rediscover myself as a writer. I spent, uh, I think it was three years on this collection, mm. putting it together and working on it, revising, going back and forth. So when I finished, I was like, I, I really need to step back and see who I am as a writer so I don't just become the Mongolian writer. Yeah. I was like, I love Mongolia, but I, I don't, I'm not sure if... I want to put myself in that hole and just stay there forever. But I definitely do. Um, like I said, in so many ways, it is my home and it, I view it as mm-hmm. a home. And so to not revisit it both in fiction and in nonfiction would be a disservice to myself. Um, I'm still fascinated by anything Mongolian. I pick up every book I can and I, I follow nowadays with social media and all this, you can follow and look at photos and videos and hear Mongolian language all the time, which is so cool to me because it feels like this other world that's still right there, just kind of just it's, I get to experience that every day, which is really, really special to me. Mm. Well, if and when you do write more about Mongolia, I look forward to reading it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.